is risen from the dead. It is a fact. He is the first domino that is tipping and setting off a whole series of consequences. And it says he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does this mean, first fruits? Here's, it's an ancient feast of Israel. Listen, everybody, Israel had seven feasts. There were three in the spring, three in the fall, and one in May or June. The three in the spring were Passover on Nisan the 14th, so no matter what happened every single year, Nisan 14 was Passover. It, it might change from a Tuesday to a Thursday. It might change from a Sunday to a Saturday. But Nisan 14 was Passover just regardless. The very next day, Nisan 15 was always Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now, in Leviticus 23, we're not going to go there for the sake of time, but in Leviticus 23, God says, Israel, I want you to celebrate first fruits with me. And here's what you do. And it says in Leviticus 23, on the day after the Sabbath, after Passover. So whatever day Passover is, whatever day of the week, it doesn't matter, you go to the next, when is Sabbath? Sabbath for the Jewish person is Saturday. God says on the day after the Sabbath, which makes it what day? Sunday. You celebrate first fruits. Every single year, first fruits was always on what day of the week? Sunday. It, could, it was always on a Sunday. It could be Nisan 18, it could be the 21st, it could be whatever, but it had to be a Sunday. So the first fruits was always celebrated on the day after the Sabbath on a Sunday morning. What would you do? You would grab the first fruits of the field, the stock of grain. You would bring a, shock, a, a sheaf of grain from the field, you'd bring it into the temple, and you'd wave it before the Lord. You were saying, Lord, this is the beginning of the harvest. It is the first fruits. What this means is there's not enough here to feed the whole group, not the whole nation for sure, but there's a promise. Because there's this much grain, it's just the beginning, God is promising a whole harvest to come in the days to come. So in the future days and weeks, we will harvest enough grain to feed the whole nation. So the idea of first fruits was this is the beginning of the harvest, implying there is more to come. Jesus is the first fruits. He is the first one to rise from the dead. He is the first domino, and he is guaranteeing that we are part of the harvest. Why do I know that I'm going to rise out of the ground and come right out of the dust? Because Jesus did, and he said he's the first. And because I'm part of the harvest, there is no doubt I will rise from the dead. Now, the first fruits happens to be with Jesus crucified on the 14th, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the 15th, he was crucified, or he was risen from the dead on the 17th of Nisan. Kind of a little side note. You know the days of the flood of Noah? He built an ark to save his family and anyone else who would believe, but nobody else did. Uh, he would save them from the flood. The ark, which is always kind of a picture of Christ, right? The ark rested on Mount Ararat. The word Ararat, by the way, means highly exalted place. The word rested in the book of Genesis, where it says the ark rested on Mount Ararat. The word rest in the Hebrew, shev, it means to sit. The ark sat on the highly exalted place on the 17th of the month of Nisan. Isn't that incredible? Noah's ark landed on Mount Ararat and sat on this highly exalted place the exact same day that thousands of years later, Jesus rose from the dead 
and then eventually would ascend to heaven and sit on the right hand, sit at the right hand of the Father. Incredible! This whole idea of first fruits on the seventeenth day of the of the month of Nisan. So it says here, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Verse twenty, and he has become the first fruits of those who have listen fallen asleep. What a great way to picture the death of a believer. Death of a believer is so temporal; it is just brief. Our body goes in the ground. Someday it's going to come out. It's just a short time. They've simply fallen asleep. Now, don't get confused with this. We heard it in Sunday school as well this morning. This is not soul sleep. That is not a biblical teaching. Although many different uh, groups and religions teach a soul sleep, that's not what this is saying. Our body goes to sleep in the ground. But my soul and spirit are instantly with the Lord, with some type of temporal body up in heaven. So verse 20, that's understandable now. But look at verse 21. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. All right, what, by what man came death? By Adam. So Adam, when he sinned in the garden, he set off a domino effect that, that you and I are part of, and someday our domino might tip and we might die if we're not raptured first, right? We will die. Because all in Adam, there's a guarantee you will die. There is no escape. No... Uh, Machine can keep you alive for a short time, but not permanently. So verse 21, For since by man, by Adam, came death, by man, that's Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. So if you are in Adam, born in the flesh, you are going to die. There's no getting out of it. But if you are in Christ, you are guaranteed a resurrection of the dead. It is going to happen. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all that's all of those who sleep in Jesus, shall be made alive. Do you like the word all there? If you're an Adam, but then you trust Jesus for your salvation, you are part of the all. All will be raised. There's not one exception. Boy, praise the Lord. I want you to be so assured of your bodily resurrection that this life is not all there is. There is an eternal existence after this life which is more glorious than we could ever imagine. Even on our greatest day of earth, he goes on, Verse 23, but each one in his own order. There's a certain ranking. There's a certain file of who gets raised up and when. Here's the order. Christ, the first fruits. He gets his body first. Now, before Jesus rose from the dead, there were seven other resurrections in the Bible. Did you know that? But why is he first then if there were seven before him? Because they all were raised up and died again. So the widow's son uh, the widow's son in Nain, he was bodily raised up. But I'll tell you what, they did have another funeral for that man later on. Only Jesus has a glorified body, nobody else. So he's the first one. Then it goes on. It says, afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Now, his coming. That is for the church in the rapture. So we have here, Jesus is the first one to get a glorified body. When do we get raised up? First Thessalonians 4 says, any time in the future, nothing else has to be done prophetically. There will be a trumpet, there will be the voice of an archangel, and Jesus will come back in body form for the church, his bride. The dead in Christ will rise up out of the ground in a moment, and in the twinkling of an eye, we who are alive will be transformed physically. We will go from this earthly body set for this type of living to a glorified body, two hands, two feet, but with lungs and the ability to survive in heaven. Whatever, that, whatever atmosphere that's like, whatever a body is required to have in heaven, 
we will have it in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ will rise. So God gives us the order of when we get raised up. It is Jesus first, the church second at the rapture. Now what about the Old Testament men and women? Hard to believe Adam and Eve have been in the grave for 6,000 years. Well, 5,000 some, right? They have been in the grave a long time. We, at this late stage in human history, we will get our glorified bodies first. Take your Bibles, go with me to Daniel chapter 12 quickly. Daniel chapter 12, we get an idea of when Old Testament saints get their body. Such a godly man like Noah and his wife and children, they've been in the grave a long time. They'll get their body after the seven years of tribulation. I think we could see that in Revelation chapter 20. So at least seven years after us, then these Old Testament men and women will rise up and get their bodies. Look with me at Daniel chapter 12. At that time, Michael, he is one of the archangels mentioned in the Bible. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble. So it seems like Michael is an angel who's kind of watching over the children of Israel, the nation of Israel. I think even now, Michael is still the guardian of Israel. I bet during the election, when Benjamin Netanyahu was reelected, you know, I bet, I don't know, can you imagine Michael looking on going, hmm, I, I, I wonder how this is going to turn out. I mean, they're curious. The angelic realm is curious. What is going on? Michael's probably thinking, oh, we're not going to let Iran do this. And, you know, there's a whole angelic battle going on over Israel. I, I believe. Look at Daniel 10 and you'll even see it closer. But here we see that this, there's a time of trouble coming for Israel, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. It's the seven years of Jacob's trouble, which we've been talking about in the book of Isaiah, 13 through 23, and we've been looking at the book of Revelation as well. And then he says this, At that time your people shall be delivered, because the Messiah comes back. So this is the end of the seven years. Who's going to be delivered? Everyone who is found written in the book, in the book of life, I believe. And many of those who sleep in the dust, if you sleep in the dust, what do we call that? Dead. So many of the Jewish people, this is not a hard one, you guys. Just read, I'm just reading the Bible to you. That's all I'm doing. Many of those who sleep in the dust, which means they are dead, um, of the earth shall awake, which means they're going to do what? Or rise up. They're going to resurrect. So this is after the seven years, these Old Testament men and women who sleep in the dust, many of them will awake. Why many? Because the unsaved dead get raised up even later than that. So we'll see that in just one moment. Some to everlasting life. He's seeing one general resurrection here, although we see it now separated by time. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's only two destinations for everybody on earth. Either heaven, the most glorious place we can imagine, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, or this lake of fire that burns and burns and burns and, and that can never be, be, um, you can never be released from. Look at verse 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So Daniel knows this much. He knows after this time of tribulation, there'll be a, a resurrection, some to everlasting life, the, tribu- the Old Testament men and women that believed in the Lord, and then a thousand years later at the great white throne, the unsaved dead. Let's take a look at that. Revelation chapter 20. Look with me at Revelation chapter 24. One more text, and then we'll be back in 1 Corinthians the rest of the time. Revelation chapter 20. 
this could very well be the most scary event in the entire Bible. If there's something to be feared, it is this event right here, Revelation chapter 20. The devil, the, false, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are all cast into the lake of fire that's burning with brimstone. They are tormented day and night forever and ever. And in verse 11 of Revelation 20, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, that's Jesus, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. I think it's... The, you know, listen, Jesus sits on his throne and he looks upon the earth and the heavens and they just like vanish because he is omnipotent God. We will see him. He's our groom. And we're the bride. We will look upon him. Wow. And there was found no place for them. Verse 12, And I saw the dead. These are the unsaved dead, small and great. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter your life on earth. It's just what did you believe? Who did you trust? Here were the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Plural. Look at that. And another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Plural. Now, I have, I think, some 6,000 volumes in my library. A lot of books. But can you imagine in heaven, there must be some library system where for an unsaved person, and I can't even know if we can, I even say this, I don't know if I can, but just picture an unsaved person standing before Jesus. They have rejected the gift of grace. They have rejected the free gift of salvation, which has been so lovingly given to the, to the world. They stand before Jesus, and he goes to a shelf, and he picks out a couple of books, and he says, wow, these are the volumes of your life. Everything you did. You want to see what you did on March 29th, 2015? Do you want to know what you thought? Do you know what you said? It's all right here. You can't get out. I've got a witness. It's all right here. Then he's going to say, depart from me. You are in a lake of fire. You get a punishment for these works that you've done. Some will have many, many volumes. And to open them up would be the most repulsive thing. Some will be moral individuals, but still many sinful things. But everyone will be judged according to their works. So here they are, raised up out of the ground to stand before God. And they will be put in a body form into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever, being tormented day and night. And we are the carriers of good news. We've got the greatest news of of a gift that would release people from that awful experience. So that's the resurrection of the unsaved. So what do we have? The order of things? Jesus first, 2,000 years ago. That's right here, Jesus. Now you and I are the church. His resurrection caused the domino to tip, and now it's the church. After the rapture, it's the Old Testament men and women. And the Old Testament men and women will rise up because we rose up, because Jesus rose up. And then after that, a thousand years later, the unsaved stand up before the Lord, and then they get judged according to their works. And so there's a resurrection for mankind. And then a final, a final destination. And this is what Paul is saying. Yes, Corinthians, there is a bodily resurrection, but because Christ rose, there's all sorts of things that are coming on. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15, and then 
we'll finish this section, and then the very final section is some great application. 1 Corinthians 15. Each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward, those who are Christ is coming. Paul's only speaking about Jesus and the church. He's not going on and giving us all the eschatology, all the events. I just gave you a few more. He just gave us those too. But then verse 24, then comes the end, the culmination of all things. When he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Wow. So after 1,000 years of ruling on this earth, Jesus will take the kingdom and he will say, Father, I can show now that a righteous man can rule creation to your honor and glory. Now, who was supposed to rule creation to God's honor and glory? Adam. God said to Adam, Adam, I want you to have dominion and tread and subdue all creation. Bring it under your submission and give all glory to me. Adam failed and Satan took over and he now is the dominion, the prince of the power of the air here. Jesus is going to take it back from Satan and for a thousand years he's going to prove a godly man can rule over the earth and give glory to the Father. So after the thousand years, Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule, all authority, and all power. Every rebel nation, every sinner has been dealt with. It is over. The sinners are now in the lake of fire, those who have rejected the gospel. The believers are safe in heaven. All authority, all rule is gone and done forever. There's nobody left to rebel against Christ. And then verse 25, for he must reign this thousand years till he has put all enemies under his feet. Now, who's the last enemy? Verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Because at that great white throne, when all the unbelievers are judged, at the end of that, they go to the lake of fire, and then death and Hades itself goes into the lake of fire. So death is finally destroyed at that point, never to harm another person, uh, another, another person that, that has been created. So death will be finally destroyed and cast in the lake of fire itself. Verse 27, For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, when the Father says all things are put under Jesus the Son, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. So when it comes to Jesus, Jesus will have absolute dominion over all authority, all power, but don't make a mistake. God the Father is still the Father. So there's still... Even in, even in the equal Godhead, there's still a flow of authority and submission. And the Father will not be subject to the Son, but the Son will be subject to the Father for all eternity. But is there a power struggle? No. There's perfect harmony. Much like in a family, a marriage relationship, the husband should lead. And the wife should, should show um, respect and honor and submission to her husband's leading. But there shouldn't be a battle over that. It should be uh, the same type of picture that we have in the Godhead. There's equal, there's equality in the Godhead, but there's definitely a different function and a flow of authority. And that's what honors and pleases God. So even Jesus will be subject to the Father for all eternity. Verse 28, Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him. Okay, so when everything is made subject to Jesus, this, these final days of submission, then even Jesus will be submissive to the Father who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Isn't that amazing? Those final days, everything subject to Jesus Christ. Now, what does he want from us now? He wants some submissive men and women, boys and girls, to him and to his will. When he says, I want you to go and do such and such, he wants an attitude of submission, not hardness and, 
And rebellion, he wants, yes, send me. Here I am. Tell me to go and I will go. Just give me the power to go. Now, let's close with these last verses, 29 through 34. Because here's the application. Because there's a bodily resurrection, certain things will be found in our life. So he he begins with verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Listen, Paul is saying this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, why would anybody be baptized for the dead? Now, this is a hard thing, and I've explained it a number of times over the past years, but here's my understanding of what it means to be baptized for the dead. I don't think it's a spiritual baptism. I don't think it's a a baptism that you do on earth for somebody who's already died, and it somehow is effective for them, because that's not what baptism means. I think Paul is talking about water baptism just as normal. Here's what it means. In my understanding, why would anybody be baptized? Because you are giving full allegiance to Jesus. So when I, get, when I got baptized some 20 years ago, I stood in the water and I said, my allegiance is to no other but Jesus. I have died when he died. I was buried and I, I rose when he rose and I'm walking in a newness of life. And I was baptized. It was a symbol. It was a picture like my wedding ring. My wedding ring tells everybody in the world, I'm married and I have allegiance to one woman. All right. Now, does this make me married? No. It's just symbolic. So baptism is symbolic of what already took place spiritually between you and your Savior. But in the early church, baptism was so special. Because if you were in the marketplace, let's say you wanted to go and, as a businessman or businesswoman, you wanted to go buy something or do something in the marketplace, often you'd have to take a pinch of incense, go to Caesar's altar, and you would say, Curios Caesar. You would say, Caesar is Lord. And you would put the incense on the altar and you would be giving allegiance to an earthly man who was a wretched sinner. If you were a believer in Jesus, you would never do that. Rather, you would stand in a body of water in the marketplace and people would watch you. Look at that nut standing in the water. What? They're going under, under the water. And they would be hearing Jesus was on the cross dying for the sins of this individual. He was buried, just like this individual is buried. And when he came out of the grave, it pictures coming out of the water. You are saying, in essence, my life is, I'm giving allegiance to Jesus and to no other. You would be, be persecuted and most often, maybe even killed. And so you would be killed for your faith. Paul, I think, is saying this. Why would anybody be baptized to fill up the ranks of Christ's army when, because Christ has an army, but if many are being killed because of their public profession of Christ, if there's no resurrection of the dead, why would you ever make that stand? If your body doesn't rise, why would you be willing to give your life up for this gospel? It doesn't make any sense. Why would anybody get baptized so that they could fill up the ranks of Christ's army, which is dying for their faith, if the gospel isn't true, if we really don't rise? Why would anybody go and serve in a country where Christians are being tortured even tonight? Someplace in this world, 
believers are being tortured for their faith. Why would they do that if there's no resurrection of the dead? It makes no sense. Paul goes on and he says this. Paul says, um, if the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized? Why even go to the public profession of Christ? Verse 30, why do we, Paul says, Paul and his associates, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Why would you be willing to give up your earthly life if there's no resurrection of the dead? You'd be foolish to do that. Why would you be willing to, to lay your life down for the gospel? You would be willing to do that because you know you're going to rise from the dead someday. So then he goes in verse 31, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Paul was such an outspoken messenger of the gospel. He, he, was, he was sought to be killed many times. People tried to kill him all the time. Why would he be willing to do that if there's no resurrection? Verse 32, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If you're a believer, after you publicly gave allegiance to Christ, many times you were thrown in the gladiator ring with wild beasts and they would rip you apart. I've been in Ephesus down uh, in the bottom part of the, the amphitheater there where they would have held Christians and I've walked up the ramp and then you go onto the, the, the plain, the sand field there. You can almost picture brothers and sisters of the faith walking up there and giving their life for the gospel. Paul says, why would anybody do that if there's no resurrection of the dead? What ad- there's no advantage. If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's from Isaiah chapter 22, by the way. Then, hey, if there's no resurrection of the dead, party fast and big on this earthly life, and then we're done. It's just over. There's nothing else after that. Paul goes on, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived by this terrible lie of, a res- of, a, of no resurrection. Evil company corrupts good habits. I think in the context, the evil company are the perpetrators of false gospels or this false message. Paul says, if you hang around people that deny the resurrection, that is evil company. And evil, if you don't believe in a resurrection, you're, all of a sudden you're going to do all sorts of things with your body that you shouldn't be doing. Why do I want to keep my body holy? Because this very body goes to heaven. It's glorified, but this body... I don't know how he uses the DNA or whatever molecules are in my flesh right now, but this hand, this same hand is going to be in heaven. Job says that his eyes will see. After his flesh is dissolved, this I know, with my eyes I shall see him, his Redeemer. I don't know how he does it, but I'm going to have this body for all eternity. I want to take care of it right now. Why would I want to trash this body with the sin of the world when God's going to do something glorious to it in the future? This is the idea. Evil company corrupts good habits. You hang around people with bad doctrine, you're going to have some bad behavior. Awake to righteousness. Wake up, everybody. Get out of your fog and do not sin. For some do not have this knowledge of God. Some do not understand the resurrection or believe it. And Paul says, I speak this to your shame. So what's the whole purpose? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are united with Christ and he is going to raise your body up someday. So be careful how you live. Just live for him. So we know dead people will be raised up, that's for sure. We also know when that's going to happen. There's a little timeline of events. Now next Sunday morning, we're going to look at how we're raised up. Like what are we going to do for all eternity? What's 
heaven going to be like? What's gonna, what does our body look like? How is it going to work? And all of those types of things. We're going to finish the chapter out with that. So um, a third in our series of resurrection. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, the, such good news here as we think about the gospel and the fact that when Jesus rose from the dead, he set off a whole series of future events that cannot be stopped. We're so thankful that the rapture will take place and our bodies will be raised up and those who are alive will be transformed in the moment. We also are thankful that the Old Testament men and women will be raised up and Adam and Eve someday will get a glorified body. That's incredible to think about. We also know that those who reject Jesus will be standing before you at the great white throne and they will be cast into a lake of fire to suffer torment day and night forever and ever. Help us, Father, to be vibrant witnesses this week. Help us to be diligent about caring for our body and living for you each and every day. We are so thankful that you have a future planned for us, some incredible glory that we will be able to enjoy enjoy, and uh, to serve you and to worship before your throne. We are thankful that during this time on earth, you've given us all the power that we need through the word and through the Holy Spirit. May this week our church live for you and be such a, a light and a testimony in our community that men and women, boys and girls, will be drawn to Christ. They will hear the gospel and they too will be saved. Thank you, Father, for the work of the church that you are doing. Just protect our church and use all of our ministries this week to glorify your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, with thanksgiving. Amen. All right, so I'm a firm believer in the resurrection. I can't even speak enough about it. We, just, we don't talk enough about it, but we're going to one more week here. And then back to Isaiah. Well, thank you for being here tonight. If you could help with uh, either loading up some things in the church van that's back there by the dumpster or else moving some chairs around. We've got tables kind of organized all around. We've got a nice diagram right here that we can follow. It's not nice. It's not nice. Okay. It's, uh, it's okay. It's, it's uh, all right. 